Lewis family? It's a simple enough question, probably obvious, but Lewis family? It's a, it's a question we start with today, this morning. You know, this summer, one of the new things for us as a family was that Titus, my son, concluded kindergarten. And we, like many other families, other parents all over, had to figure out what Titus would do since both Rachel and I work. Fortunately, my absolute saint of a wife managed to sign him up for a continuous string of summer camps throughout summer, uh, which meant each week we were dropping Titus off and picking him up at a new summer camp in the area. So that meant every Monday we would drop off Titus at a new environment, a new place, New set of camp counselors, new kids. Drop off was sometimes a timorous moment, especially early in the week. In that pickup, after a long day of new things and new people, Titus would often spot me across the field and run towards me with a big hug and a smile. He was just ready to go home. Checkout would be simple as camp counselors would see this and quickly understand, ah, yes, Tim, that's. Titus is father, Titus is daddy. <clears throat> but near the end of the week, after several days of Titus making new friends and having a ton of fun, at pickup time, I would walk up to him, say hi to the staff, uh, tell them I was there to pick up Titus, my son, called the Titus. He greeted not with a smile or a hug, but a scream <laughs> as he would bolt off in the opposite direction because, you know, summer camp can't end if you don't get in the car. Fortunately, you know, most of the times at that point in the, of the week, uh, the camp counselors would know that I was Titus's dad, but, you know, if not, if it was Rachel doing the drop-off and pick-up up until then, uh, I would then have to be, I guess, otherwise proving relationship with, uh, with Titus by presenting IDs and, uh, you know, maybe a birth certificate, family photos on my phone showing that I am indeed Titus's dad, and maybe a DNA test or two just to prove that this was not a kidnapping incident. Right, whether a summer camp pickup or not, family is often our most fundamental, fundamentally core of our identity. It's true for us today. It's true maybe even more so in Jesus' day. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50 which you can find in page, on page 818 in the Bibles in front of you. And if, you're, you know, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the small number. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, 46 to 50 this morning. And if you don't own a Bible and you would like to take one, uh, there, we have some Bibles in the back so you can pick those up on your way out after the service. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother sister and mother. Some backdrop to this uh, text would be helpful. The 
The people in this time would have understood family to be a profoundly central component of their identity. Set apart as God's own people by tracing a familial linkage to Abraham and Isaac, bloodline and birthright was a critical concern to the Israelites. Even more so now, while they were under Roman occupation, their shared ancestry was all they had left, basically, to hold on to as the basis of them being a distinct people. And now in this passage, we see that the small but growing following that Jesus had were now crowded in this room with him, and Jesus was speaking to them. And we see that his mother and his brothers came, probably not to listen to him teach. They were standing outside of the room, they were not planning to come in. And instead, they sent someone, to, someone else to get Jesus' attention. We don't know exactly what they wanted to say to Jesus. It's not written here in this text. But we do know their approach. They sent someone to tell Jesus that they wanted to speak to him. They do this while Jesus was still speaking. Maybe they presumed that getting to Jesus, getting his attention would be no big deal. Right? Mom wants to talk. It won't take long. In fact, I'm not entirely sure that this would be all that odd at the time, with family being the most foundational block of relationship at a time where bloodline was fundamental to national identity. What was odd was Jesus. Here he's in his early 30s at this point uh, and, and had not settled down. He was not married. He did not have children, as would be expected for a man of his age at that time. He's just seemingly just wandering around from place to place with his crew, stirring up commotion, doing things that were abnormal, stirring up controversy, disrupting the normal order of things. It is with this context that Jesus responds with a, a very odd question to his audience. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He then redefines his family those who were there, his disciples, there with him in that room. Yet another thing that Jesus would do that would confound many around him and would also give hope to those who believe in him. Through understanding who Jesus calls his family, we can rightly understand our own family, our relationship with other believers, and ultimately our relationship with Christ. In this passage, we see three things about the family of God. And if you're taking notes, these are the three points for this morning. Three things. One, the family of God is evident. Number two, the family of God is community. And number three, the family of God is through Christ alone. Let me repeat those three points. Number one, the family of God is evident. Number two, the family of God is community. Number three, the family of God is through Christ alone. The family of God is evident. <clears throat> what that means is that it is defined, it can be observed, it can be clearly distinguished between what is and what isn't. Jesus' own mother and brothers came to speak to Jesus, and when Jesus was informed of this, he asked that odd question, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's odd because it's not that all of a sudden he forgot who his mother was or who his brothers were. Jesus uses the moment to fundamentally challenge 
to define what it means to identify as family. Jesus tells us that it is those who are in the room with him, not that his biological family standing outside, who were his mothers and sisters and brothers. He gives his disciples and he gives us the message that our physical families and our spiritual families, they can sometimes be different. Our spiritual family to be family of God is somehow more significant, ultimate in fact, in comparison to the relationships that we have going on here. <clears throat> we should be clear. Jesus isn't anti-family. Jesus is not anti-family. Jesus is, however, telling us that there is something even greater than our physical families. In chapter 19, he tells us that whoever has left houses or brothers or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or children, for his name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. With Jesus' ministry, everything is changed. Everything is now different. Being of our physical families has likely some earthly significance. Being of the family of God now has eternal significance. Jesus' ministry changes everything. So Jesus isn't saying family is bad. Just you're not going to inherit this family by virtue of birth. The people who called Jesus his family were those with him, following him, not those outside. And so it is with us. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you are. As if you inherited like your last name. You're not a Christian because you grew up going to church. You're not a Christian because you grew up in, a, in an area or, or part of the country that where seemingly everyone goes to church. No, you're a Christian if you follow Christ. You're a Christian if you make a decision to follow Christ. Jesus also tells us that the family of God isn't permanent. It's not inherited and it isn't permanent. And just like you stepping into this church this morning, does not make you a Christian. In fact, you can step into church every single Sunday of your life and you can still not be a Christian. We now have to look at the, how this, our passage today concludes chapter 12 to see this. So how the rest of the chapter up until this point tells us this. Chapter 12 records a series of wrong responses to Christ by the religious elite of the day and ending with his disciples here with the right response to Jesus as Lord. The Pharisees have been tailing Jesus this whole chapter. You may recall from last week, looking for opportunities to trap him, to cast doubt on him. So verses 1 through 2, Jesus' disciples picked grain from a field to eat on the Sabbath. And what were, what were the Pharisees' response? They responded by pointing out, oh, no, no, Jesus, that's not lawful. You can't do that. The Sabbath is holy. And to be really holy, you can't do anything that might be construed as work, like picking grain and eat. Verse 9, there was a man with a withered, with withered hand, and the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus. And they asked him, would it be lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus did heal the man. And the Pharisees then responded by going out, conspiring against him. Verse 22, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. And the Pharisees see this and respond saying, Jesus must be doing the work of demons. And then verse 38, the Pharisees and scribes try to trap Jesus again asking to see a sign from Jesus, testing him. And now, in verse 49, in our passage today, Jesus stretches out his hands to his disciples and says, 
here. Here are my mother, my sisters, my brothers. But no, who's missing? No, who's not here? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are not here. Where are they? Well, they're outside doing Pharisee things. <clears throat> Later, you know, these, are, these are people who are far more interested in having the appearance of, of obedience, of being extremely religious so as to be noticed and admired. Less interested in actually obedience to God. Later on, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for having the outward appearance of righteousness to others, but within, full of hypocrisy, full of lawlessness. Friends, you can't religion your way into the family of God. You can't do enough to get there. You can't claim an identity with Christ by any measure of your work. So, Christian, Maybe you need to be reminded of that today. Maybe you know, yeah, salvation is by faith alone. I get it. Not anything I've done. I get that. I believe that. But you're burdened by the guilt that you're not good enough. You keep struggling with the same sin. You fall back. You get it back up. You turn from it, but you're thinking again. Again. Not good enough. Keep doing it again. The shame is so heavy. Christian, be reminded. Your actions didn't save you in the first place. It's not what keeps you in the Lord. It is Christ who saved you and it is Christ who will keep you. It wasn't perfection or the appearance of perfection, as the Pharisees were more interested in, that caused Jesus to call his, call his disciples, his family, was that they showed up. They followed Christ. Imperfectly, yeah, probably. But they believed in him, and they followed him. So be encouraged if you find yourself there today. The fact that you can't earn your way into God's family means that there is no such thing of not being good enough as a member of God's family. So the family of God is not anything family of God is not earned, but it is recognized. As Jesus recognizes his followers with him in that room, calling them directly his family. There is a delineation between who is in and who is out, as evidenced by doing the will of God. That delineation, that separation, that, that explicit separation of who's in and who's out might make us uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus does here. Precisely what Jesus says here. And if it's uncomfortable with us, it's probably because we tend to think of acceptance and inclusion in terms of merit and inherent worth. Jesus isn't talking about inherent value of a person. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see Christ affirming the intrinsic value of all people as made in the image of God, such that whoever believes in him will be saved. Jesus' ministry was to both the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the outcast, men and women, the occupiers and the oppressed, the religious and the possessed. But the separation of who is in God's family and who is outside God's family demolishes any notion of privilege or access to God through provenance 
or personal merit. We aren't saved because of our individual backgrounds. We aren't saved by our works. We are saved through Christ alone. For our works, doing the will of God, is really just the result of the salvation, not the cause. Doing the will of God is evidenced. It's an evidence of an inner reality for the Christian. Similar to how Jesus describes earlier in verse 33, that a tree is known by the fruit that it bears, clearly distinguishing between who is in the family of God and who isn't is like portioning off a grove of distinct fruit trees, bearing without question a distinct fruit, and tells of the farmer that put them there. This is one reason why we practice meaningful membership here at Hope Fellowship Church. When joining membership, we don't say, hey, tell us about all the good things you've done. And tell us about the bad things. And we'll adjudicate. We'll figure out if that's, if that's good enough. enough or not. We don't ask that question. We don't consider if you grew up in the church or had parents who were Christians. We, we do want to know you. We do want to get to know you. But most importantly, we ask for your testimony of faith. How Christ died for your sins and how you responded in repentance in a new life of believing and trusting in Christ. And the church accepts you into membership by saying, ah, this is her profession of faith. We believe it. It is compelling. From what we understand, she is truly a regenerate believer and concludes with a mutual promise to one another to love one another by holding each other true to the very thing that saved us in the first place, that our lives would be congruent to the gospel message and that together as a church, a church made up of believers who all point to the same gospel that saved them, we put that Christ on display, holding out that same message in hope that compelled us. That's the local church. That's essentially what it is. Which provides a nice segue to our second point for this morning. The family of God is community. The family of God is community. In the book... The Compelling Community by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop. A case is made that there are two ways to build a church community. One that relies around some sort of demographic or programmatic synergy, like uh, this is the performing arts church, or this is the biker church, this is the church aimed at young professionals or students, the church for enacting a, a particular social change, the church for people passionate about Pick your movement. Then there are church communities that we actually can't really define by any demographic lumping. A supernatural community. One that you have to look, you know, that one that if you look from the outside and say, I can't actually tell what these people have in common. It appears that they, they reflect sort of like the hodgepodge of the community around them but they're not aggregating, they're not congregating like the rest of the broader community around particular affinities like sports teams and school groups, hobbies, professions, age groups. They're not doing that. This is a supernatural church community that seems hard to be defined by any commonality related to people's daily lives, except they all tend to get together, living life together, meeting once a week to hear God's word. Very odd, very strange, very peculiar compelling from the display of unity in the midst of diversity. I remember one of the older Christians of a church I was previously a member of 
had shared his testimony of salvation. For years, he was a researcher on groupthink, teaching at Harvard, just down the road, on how different communities congregate around mutual, mutually shared affinities, right? concluding that there, there's a thread of homogeneity that holds true for all groups that he studied. This was true for all groups in this world. <clears throat> then he studied the church, and it broke his model. In the church, he saw people from all different walks of life, different upbringings, different political views, different interests, cultures, different life stages. And there was no explanation for why these people did life together so closely. What he eventually found, not just for his research, but for himself, was that there was a commonality, in fact, this gospel message of salvation through Christ, and the new life of hope in Christ, so literally life-transforming every other points of affinity, including family relationships, are rendered minuscule by comparison. Christian, let me ask you this. Does your individual discipleship, what I mean by that is your personal walk with Christ, does that extend to discipleship along with others? This could look like grabbing lunch with others after church together and discussing the message of that morning, maybe meeting up for coffee midweek. It can look like practicing hospitality, inviting people to your home, apartment, or dorm, running errands together. Even the mundane things of life, the mundane activities of everyday life can be occasions to do life together. One way is to join a community group. We're, we're going to start that up pretty soon for this fall, and Sign-ups will go out soon, but, you know, I remember when Rachel, my wife, and I had just moved to the Boston area six years ago. We had a, a four-month-old, a full schedule, not a lot, a lot of time to have organically grown new friendship. That's just another way of saying we had no friends here. <laughs> we, we came here and knew no one, um, not well at least. <clears throat> so we joined a community group, and we decided, I mean, I, Rachel and I, we talked talk and agreed that, you know, this community group, we're going to join it. It's going to be one that's close to us. Everyone in it, they'll just be our friends, you know, whether we like them or not. Right? They'll just be our friends. That, that, that's our friend group. And it worked. And it worked. Now some of you guys are wondering if you guys were one of those who we didn't like. Um, that's, uh, we like you guys now. But we were so blessed by that decision. Not only learning to love people who we otherwise wouldn't befriend under normal circumstances outside the church, but we were so loved by those who were different than us. It was one of the best decisions that we made the first few months of moving up here. And that's how it is with the family of God. Friends, do this today. Take inventory of your friendships. Consider those closest to you. They all seem to be like you. Are they all mostly very similar to you in life stage, demographic, interests, viewpoints, cultural upbringing? Because that would be natural. That's very natural. But ask yourself, if, if your relationships within the church is a more of a cross-section of a supernatural community, relationships that are only explainable 
but our shared identity in Christ. It is the privilege of family that we have full status as members of this family without qualifiers. The access that Jesus' mother and brothers were seeking as they stood outside asking to speak to Jesus is instead given to his disciples who were inside with him and given to us as a church equally, without reservation. There is no family member, no child left unwanted. We do this as a church when we covenant with one another, making commitments to one another with no qualifiers. Let me just read four of these promises that I make to the church membership and that you, if you're a member, make back to me. Right? These are just four of them. We will work for the unity of the church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing the gossip, by submitting to the leaders that God has given to the church, and we'll pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in love and exercise a loving care and accountability over each other and faithfully encourage and correct one another as necessary. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and seek to show compassion and sympathy in order to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. No qualifications. No reservations. It's not like, oh, we'll, we'll agree to do these things because, you know, for, for those who are close and kind of like us. No. It's whoever we covenanted with in this church. As we promise we make to each other, as, as these are promises that we make for each other as members of Hope Fellowship Church, by the grace of God, I think, you know, I believe this is evident in our family today. And with God's help, we pray it be increasingly so in Christ Jesus. The family of God is in Christ alone. So that's, that's our third point for this evening. The family of God is Christ. Sorry, this morning. A family of God is through Christ alone. In these verses, Jesus is dismantling for us an ultimate sense of identity that we may have apart from God, and does so pointedly with the concept of family, perhaps the most foundational sense of identity most of us start with. Jesus uses the painful irony of his own physical family being on the outside, while his disciples, those inside, listening to Jesus, following him, fulfilled a deeper, more ultimate meaning of family. This isn't the first time in Jesus' teaching where we see the dichotomous situation. It's not the only time. In Luke 15, we read the parable of the prodigal son, a father, you guys may know this, the father who had two sons, a younger son who demands from his father the full advance of his inheritance, completely emancipating himself from his father and his family. The young man leaves with his money, squanders it off in reckless living, and finds himself with nothing remaining. Hires himself off to feed pigs, starving and longing for even the slop that he was feeding the pigs. Eventually he figures, you know, it would probably be marginally better if he just goes back to his father, apologize, just work as a servant for his father. And he's um, <clears throat> essentially to affect no longer his father's son. You may recall what happens next. The man returns. His father receives him back with a kiss and an embrace. Restores him as a son and throws a big feast for his younger son who had now rejoined the family. But while this party was happening on inside, 
It was the older brother who was outside, unable to make sense of it all, saying, Father, I don't, I didn't go off wishing you dead. I didn't go off taking your property and throwing it all away. No, I've been here the whole time. I've been working hard for you this whole time. What the brother, what the older brother didn't quite understand about his father was that his father's love for his son and for his sons were, was unconditional, that, that he cared more about having his sons as his own versus anything that they may have done. And restoring one of his children who was once lost but now found, once dead but now alive, was the father's own work, and he delighted in it. Whoever does the will of God, Jesus calls his brother, his sister, his mother. So how do you know? How do you do the will of God? We do the will of God when we are his. We do the will of God when we turn to Christ, turn to him, and follow him. And it's only possible as we all, prodigals by nature, are restored through Christ's work on the cross. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you are welcome. But this is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Every other religion on earth teaches a concept of doing enough right things to be saved, like adding enough weights on a balance to tip the scales. You've got to abide by a set of practices to be in good standing. In Islam, you profess Muhammad as a messenger, pray five times a day, give alms, fast during Ramadan, Hajj to Mecca if you can. In Hinduism, Buddhism, and other Dharmic religions, you must self-attain the state of liberation accomplished through various disciplines like meditation. You know, we can go on and on down the list, but every other religion has you doing enough good and minimizing the bad, whereas Christianity teaches something completely different. There's nothing we can do on our own to earn salvation because we're morally bankrupt. We have to start there. There is a God. There is a creator God who created all things. He created the universe. He created you and I. And he is holy. His God is perfect. His God is just. Man, you and I, have all fallen short of perfection. We have sinned. We have all done wrong to one another. And ultimately, we have done wrong to a holy and just God who will bring judgment on all evil. That's a problem. It's a problem for everyone. Regardless of what amount of good that you have done in your life. But Jesus, Jesus Christ, God's own son, entered the world as a man, lived a sinless life, perfectly obedient to God, and bore the full punishment of our sins in our place as he died on the cross as a substitute for us. He rose again three days later, conquering death, and now a living hope for all of those who would believe in him. That is good news. The work of salvation is done. It's complete. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. It is done. That is the gospel. And it beckons us to respond. If you want to learn more, feel free to catch me after the service back by the door on the way on the way out, uh, you can ask me or, or any other member here at Hope Fellowship. I'm sure they will be happy 
to share more about how they responded to this good news of salvation. Parents, there may be some parents in here today. Parents, our passage this morning challenges those of us with children. The goal isn't to make sure that our kids are educated, emotionally and relationally balanced, successful and happy. Those are all great things to desire for our children. But the ultimate goal, the goal is ultimately, ultimately to see that our children will choose Christ over anything else, including perhaps you. Don't overestimate your ability to image Christ perfectly now or in the future. And don't underestimate Christ's work in your child's heart. So parents, as with all other areas of our lives, our family can either say true things or lies about God. Our families should serve to illustrate, not stand in the way of, but to, to illustrate a more ultimate family of God that we pray our children will enter. And by God's grace, we pray that they would enter in an early age. We can do that in the way that we live in community, in the way we interact with our neighbors and our friends, in the way that we deal with challenges and suffering, in the way we prioritize friendships and fellowship, in the way that we display grace and where we place our trust. We should model in our own homes to our own children that family is important, but family isn't everything. Christ is everything. I also want to speak to those of us today who find this topic particularly challenging and painful because perhaps you no longer have a family. Painfully lost over the years. Perhaps you desire to be married but have waited and waited. Or you wish to have children of your own but you know the sharp pain of not having. Perhaps even though you have family members, estrangement, broken trust, perhaps even abuse and trauma have left you alone. This passage brings hope. In Christ, you have a new family, a new family with a perfect father who never fails, and a spiritual family, spiritual family members who you share an eternally more significant bond than with any earthly family. And you have a Savior who himself can sympathize. In this passage, Jesus' own mother and brothers were not with him. In Luke chapter 7, we read Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. So you can imagine the pain, the sense of loneliness Jesus felt of being misunderstood by his own people. It is this Christ that calls you to follow. And through the same Christ that we enter the family. We're, we're called to display the doing of God's will among our broader community by the way we live in gospel community. Did you notice in this passage, Jesus calls not an individual, but a plurality of disciples? He calls a plurality of them as his family. We can't, we can't put this on display individually. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen by itself. It requires a togetherness. As we read in the book of John, chapter 13, Jesus' words, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
This is a love that comes from another. We can't originate this love from ourselves. This is from another. It is love that comes from Christ's work in our hearts. It's a work that adopts us into a new family of God and compels us to love those around us who we may have absolutely nothing in common except our shared identity in Christ. Obedience doesn't save us. Not ours anyways. But we do the will of God when we trust and follow Christ for our salvation and display it to a watching world.